Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that one to desire. Can I say something that I think is bullshit? Don't fool you. Yes, we sell out. He also told me he was on acid. Hey, you better wash that mic off. I was gonna fill it up with my own urine. Alcoholica. And I talked about digging a hole in a fucking dirt and smoking hash through the ground. Oh, I don't know. There's all kinds of shit. And shower filled with women. <laughs> Sit your ass down, Lara. Shoot a pair of women's legs walking down the street. Eight women washing you down at once, you know. Come up here, Lars points to me. <laughs> And his skin is bubbling like on the Toxic Avenger. Boyfriends and dads looking for me. Singing along, fucking along, doing this something the fuck along. Here we go! Yo, Duder, this is Bob O'Rourke from Chicago, Jeff and Shane's OG guest and ratings bar setter. And you're listening to him podcast for all. All right, then. podcast for all i'm shane obershaw and i'm jeff winslow jeff can you imagine you and i make a video well you and i just made a promo video a couple months ago we did we did and imagine a billion that's a billion with a b is in bravo people click on it to view it oh kind of like the nothing else matters video a billion dude i can't even comprehend that it's pretty incredible but i mean hey it was either going to be that song or Enter Sandman, so... How does Sandman not have a billion views? I'm, I thought that Sandman would get it there soon. I saw that, you know, a couple of the, the pages that I'm on on Facebook, some people were posting the video saying, all right, start clicking on it. We're trying to get it to a billion views. I'm like, oh, you don't even need to share that. It'll just, just let it naturally happen. It'll all happen. The night that it hit it, people were like, click now, click now. Right, and it's like, we all know it's going to happen. I mean, and I, I saw that post, and I think it was like an hour later, and it was already like 300,000 views past yeah, where it was. I was like, holy shit, that really skyrocketed quick. And it's a music video that they just, you know, cut and spliced footage from a year and a half in the life of and made it into... Yeah, it's not matters. even an actual music video. Nope, it's just leftover cutting room film. <laughs> like, hey, here's our sloppy seconds, enjoy. <laughs> Our sloppy, bil- sloppy billions. Yeah, our sloppy billion seconds. <laughs> Speaking of Sandman, I mean, it seems like every week you and I do an intro, we're talking about the Black Album. It's kind of been one of those years with the box set coming out. Well, yeah, and it's each week they're releasing new things, new covers. And speaking of, what did you think of the Weezer Sandman cover? Oh, let me do that over again. I'm going to do the pizzle noise. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. I was just kind of meh. Dude, write this down. You and I are agreeing on one of these blacklist covers. We are agreeing. I like I said, I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was bad, but it was just, 
It was exactly what I expected, which was kind of yeah, kind. Of, I have to agree with you. No offense to Weezer, but it just turned into kind of a stale pop punk wannabe metal song. <laughs> Don't tell anybody, but you and I opened up for Weezer about five or six years ago in Grand Junction, Colorado, and they're kind of dicks. They were actually like legit dicks to me. All the other bands we played with, I remember Theory of a Dead Man. Yep. Uh, in this moment. Yep. And I think even some of Linkin Park's crew showed up the day before and yep. they were there too. All of those guys, super cool. Had lunch with them. Awesome. And then Weezer just wasn't so nice. But I will say, even though they weren't very nice to us, we were still standing side stage watching them play because without true. a doubt. True. Yeah, maybe they're dicks, but they sound amazing live, and they obviously didn't get to where they're at by sucking. But, wow, yeah, I was expecting a lot more welcoming <laughs> vibes from them. Cool to watch them side stage in front of 20,000 people, but not cool when their tour manager came to me and said, um, I understand that Vanna trailer is yours. Can you move it? Because the guys need room to play Frisbee. Yeah, I know. Yeah, for like, real. Like, Are you fucking kidding me? I was like, Shane was like, man, fuck your mama. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Fuck your mama. Yeah, I wasn't impressed by them. What I'm more impressed about was, I'm going to butcher this name, Tommy Ovo? I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but Tommy yes. Ovo. Beautiful young lady that covered Through the Never and... Obviously not my style of music, but what she did for Through the Never. Oh, it was badass. It was very cool. Now that is a take on a cover where it's like, all right, here, this is the song, but I'm going to really throw my style. Not that the other people haven't thrown their flavor twist on it, but right. I mean, wow, this was really something else. It was pretty spectacular. The music video to this Through the Never, I'm just going to title right now, Multiple Orgasms. <laughs> That video is, I don't know why, but as I watch 30 or 40 seconds of it, it's kind of like those screensaver, water meets the sand kind of effect videos. It's almost like the, yeah, the, the, the satisfying videos. Like a lava lamp kind of feel. Yeah, the satisfying. When you, yeah, when you see, see them on YouTube. crushed and shit. Or they're getting sliced nice and smoothly. It's just that smooth, satisfying look. Or people are like, you know, those glass blowers with the torch and all that. It's the yeah. stuff you just can't look away from because it's just so mesmerizing. I guess it makes sense calling it multiple orgasms because those are pretty satisfying as well. So, <laughs> I mean, Every, everything <laughs> in that video is a <laughs> just go just go watch the fucking video, people. It's right. it's it's awesome. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to hear the the. Emails we get for that right there. And podcastforall at gmail.com for all your multiple oh. orgasm and oh. hate train oh. mail needs. Please let us know what you think of the satisfying oh. orgasmic through the never video. Going back to the Sandman chatter, since nothing else matters has a billion views, they also released the, what they call it, the psycho band only version of the Sandman video. Yeah, just strictly band only in the video. I thought it looked pretty cool. I checked it out. I didn't watch the whole thing, but I, I, I watched most really, of it. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I watched most of it, and I was like, this is it's pretty legit. I almost maybe like that more than the original video. Nothing like shooting a video for six hours with strobe lights. I mean, that had to be a seizure of an afternoon. Yeah, for how do you not like get epilepsy from that? I mean, wow. <laughs> It was cool. Um, what else can we touch on here? 
Well, it's August 3rd. As we record this, it's August 3rd, and we all know whose birthday is on August 3rd. Drum roll. Lloyd Grant. Uh, no. <laughs> Mr. Hetfield. So happy birthday. Yep, happy birthday to Mr. James Hetfield, or as they call him, Mr. James Hatfield. Mr. James Hatfield from Metallica just happens to have the blues. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we got a special guest sitting in, and I just happen to have the blues. Mr. James Hatfield from Metallica. How about a big round of applause? The blues. He's. I don't think he has the birthday blues today. I think. I think he's feeling pretty good, or we're hoping he feels pretty good. Fifty-eight, I believe. Yeah, he's starting to. He's starting to get up there a little bit. Well, I'm forty, so fifty-eight doesn't sound so old anymore. But realistically, I mean. That's not really old by today's standards, 58. No, sir. Not at all. Have you seen Sylvester Stallone at 70 years old? When you said that, I just remember the, I think it's a meme. It says, both of these men are 73 years old. Sammy Hagar and Bill Clinton. (laughs) Bill Clinton. (laughs) And Bill ain't looking good. (laughs) Yeah. Sammy, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Bill, you know, he lives with Hillary. Cigars. Oh. (laughs) But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. <laughs> He's Billary, so we understand why. Did you see this artist called Sebastian doing Don't Tread on Else Matters? No, I have not. What? How'd you see the multiple orgasms, but you didn't see this this mashup of Don't Tread and Nothing Else? I don't know. I saw it in my feed. You must be working too much for some shit. I've been busy the last, like, 14 days. Very, very busy. We played a show last weekend in Sioux City. Next weekend, we're in Sturgis for two nights. What what, what the hell have you been doing? Uh, between a little bit of family vacation, back and forth between the Family the vacation? And the cabin and were then... you in the uh, family truckster? Yeah, yeah, Wagon Queen, Metallic P. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the line. Metallic P, but I wanted the Antarctic Blue. Antarctic Blue with the optional Rally Fun Pack. You didn't order the uh, Metallic P? Metallic P? No, Antarctic Blue. You think you hate it now? <laughs> Wait till you drive it. I don't want to drive it. I just want my old car back. Now, Ed, I'm not your everyday ordinary fool, okay? <laughs> Ed. I'm not your ordinary everyday fool, okay? <laughs> now, I want my Antarctic Blue Sportster, or I'll take my business elsewhere. Yeah, I want my old car back. <laughs> yeah, no, I've just been busy, and then yesterday was my youngest daughter's birthday, so so oh. close to James's birthday, but didn't quite make it, but that's all right. Miss Emma is th- three, three years old? She's three years old. Where'd that time go? Yeah, I know. I was just thinking about that. She's three, and my other two are just, you know, they're getting old, too. I'm getting old. We're all getting old, dude. What's happening? Well, when we retire, the kids can take over and podcast for all and, and, and run it ten times better. Yeah, we'll see if they can speak a little bit more intelligently than we can. It could be. <laughs> what else we got to cover here? By the way, we're going to Hawaii tonight. I would like to go play some shows in Hawaii. Do you think they have any good venues there, or is it is it limited? We're going to find out. Speaking of good shows in a club, we are going to Honolulu to talk to Mr. Bill Hale, the original photographer from the old Kill 'em All days. I, this, is, this is going to be good. 
It's going to be good. Anybody who hasn't picked up his book, make sure you go pick it up. There are some amazing shots in there from the early days. You don't want to miss it. The club days, 1982 to 1984, live, raw, and without a photo pit pass. That's a great title because we're talking about the stone, the keystone, the Waldorf. I mean, some old school shit. It's about as legendary as it comes. Yeah, you guys are in for a real treat here. Basically the beginning. I'm not going to give all the secrets away, but you know when you get a photo from stage left of looking at Lars through a rototom, that's the early days. Staying hidden, but still getting iconic shots. Maybe for the 40th at the Chase Center, Lars is going to bring those rototoms back out for Hit the Lights and Motograph. I I sure hope he does. If he doesn't... you don't Lars you're a sellout man what are you waiting for I know you have those in storage where's the old Camco kit I want to see it <laughs> just put some black heads underneath it you're good the kit where Jam says or no I take that back the kit where Ron says hit a symbol it would fall over pick it back up hit the symbol again it would fall back over he wasn't the best drummer well I mean rumor has it that Lars might have taken drum lessons at one point after the band was already formed who knows if that's true or not i guess we'll never know that but i mean when you got roto toms you can hit all the notes so you don't need lessons he just wanted to be nico mcbrain he wanted all those toms <laughs> wow that was impressive that sounded like a roto tom fill <laughs> do that again <laughs> nice well, Nico only has about 19 toms, so that's Yeah, that's 19 right. toms and 23 symbols and a ride symbol that covers up, you know... You can't see him. Three quarters of one of his rack toms. How <laughs> he hits see. that. I'm like, how do you fucking hit that? Like, you're, you're literally, your ride covers your fucking tom. <laughs> All for looks, dude. It's got to be triggered. <laughs> yeah, triggered. <laughs> Anything more to cover before we go to Honolulu and talk to one of the most OG photographers in the rock and roll... <laughs> The history in of history. Rock yeah, yeah, literally in history. This is going to be good. I would like to jump on a plane and be there in person right now, but this will have to do. Get one of those cocktails with the umbrella in it as you wear your metal up your ass shirt, right? Yeah, is that like a Mai Tai or something? Yeah, ask Chris. He's there every four weeks. Yeah, literally. I swear he lives there. All right, here we go. From Honolulu, Hawaii, the club days, 1982 to 1984, live raw and without a photo pit pass. Please welcome Mr. Bill Hale. Aloha. <laughs> Bill, you're in uh, Honolulu? Yes, I am. How long you been out there? Uh, 21 years. Uh, where was home for you originally? Monterey, California. Is that where uh, Pebble Beach is? Yes, I do. You're not a golfer, I take it? No, no. My brother used to be the head greenskeeper out there when he was like a kid. Oh, God. Crazy. That's yeah. got to be some good stories. No. <laughs> uh <laughs> He was one of those guys, I never smoked pot, I never did drugs in the 80s, one time with Armored State, but uh, he would, Greenskeeper, he would wake up in the morning, like the song, he would like smoke two joints and watch the sunrise and do the greens and then go home and smoke one more, dope, but uh, I never got into any of that stuff, so. Sounds like a dream come true for a pothead. Yeah, you know, get out there, and he got paid tons of money there, then he moved on to Poppy Hills and then Spyglass. The other golf courses, so. I've heard of Spyglass. It's in the same area, isn't it? Same area. Nice. Four golf courses in that little 17-mile square, whatever place, so. Nice. Yeah, Monterey has like 32 
golf courses in that peninsula, Monterey, Carmel, Seaside, all that. Stuff. And it's, it's in, been a drought for 30 years, and they have golf courses. But um, Yeah, imagine that. We won't get into that. <laughs> yeah, so Monterey is basically you know, between L.A. and Frisco, so you're growing up right in the heavy, the scene of it. Yeah, we had to drive 113 miles to the city or fly to L.A. And, and uh, we, we did a lot of traveling. My, uh, cause I was in a magazine called metal rendezvous. I don't know if you knew that or not, yep. but met, modern, yeah, I'll get into that later, but we had to, we did a lot of traveling. Uh, what years was this? Um, I started shooting in 79 and the magazine folded in 89. So it was like all, all my twenties. I remember, uh, at the end of, uh, 88, 89, I was really burnt out cause you know, when you start, a fanzine, you never think it's going to be like huge. And we got to be hundred thousand issues worldwide. And I, it was, it was nonstop. I can get into that later, but it was nonstop for a long time. And then I walked in the office and said, dude, I got it. I I'm done. I was fried. And then the whole scene was changing too. It was like, uh, all the bands I, I fought with. I mean, I was in the trenches with getting places, you know, Armored Saints and the Exodus or whatever, and all of a sudden the new guards coming up, and I felt if I continued on with Soundgarden and all that stuff, I would betray my generation kind of thing. So it was a good time to bow out and uh, <laughs> reflect for a couple years. So 79 and 80, what were some of the uh, first shows you were shooting? Oh, dude, right off the bat, it was ACDC with Bon Scott, Richie Blackmore, Rain- yeah, Richie, I was 18, Richie Blackmore, Rainbow, uh, Triumph, when they're still, when uh, Gilmore is still singing all the songs, uh, there was UFO, Thin Lizzy, Nazareth, Judas Priest, every major band, you know, of the the old guard. I saw Thin Lizzy twice. It was all that jam packed, you know. Blues to call, Ronnie Montrose, Sammy Hagar, Sammy Hagar still before he could drive, uh, you know, all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and then uh, before he could drive fifty five. Yeah, exactly. Before he was restricted, and then there's some big, you know. Um, some of the iconic gigs were like, of course, Murder Hit the Old Waldorf. You know, everybody was there. The Bears, wow. uh, the first time I met Cliff Burton was uh, at a Michael Shanker gig. MSG opened up for uh, Cheap Trick, and I met, you know, I met Cliff. He didn't talk, but he was with Mike Borden, and Mark, mm-hmm. Mike always talked. Before Mike had dreadlocks, he was a little. And, uh, but every, you meet everybody in the first year and a half, I think, who was going to be anybody. I was going to say, everybody you just listed off there in two years, holy shit, talk about our dream gigs. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. about as legendary as it gets right there. Yeah, and that really helps the scene, or my generation get going, because, you know, all those great live albums, you know, Alive and Dangerous, Rainbow on Stage, uh, Unleashed, sure. Unleashed in the East, right? I mean, those, all, until 79, everybody was putting out great live albums, and, you know, that was just amazing stuff. ACDC with Bon Scott, I'm guessing back then it was easier to get to uh, photo pit pass than it is these days oh, you didn't have to you just walked in and i was a kid not knowing anything <laughs> yeah that's how you know it's how it starts you walk in and you and you start learning i may knew a little bit about photography but you started learning how to do a concert shoot and where to be and where not to be and what kind of film to use and it's all a manual so the, i developed my own black and white it was a whole process and then on the same hot thing by editor john stranowski uh, he learned how to edit, I mean, uh, to become an editor. So we were like the one-two thing. I can get it much later because, you know, this is how, I can tell you how Lars does the whole scene. It's amazing how this young man, uh, 
just knew everybody within the first couple of months of being in Huntington Beach. And all those people turned out to be like the biggest players, the behind the scenes, the Bob Nobadians, Ron Quintana, Brian Slagle, John Smasky. We all, you know, he met us within, you know, a couple of months of being here. He just had that ability. And the cool thing was we all were linked by the new age of British heavy metal. That was the thing that was what driving us, the Angel Witches and the Saxons and the Samsons, all those great bands. That was like what we were like drawn to. And of course, Lars, List uh, hung out with Brian Towler before he got here, and Lars saw Angel Witch and Tigers Are Panting, and you know all that stuff. So he he came over, and he knew this, and we knew this, and that was like the elite of the elite going through. So basically, I mean, you're shooting these big name bands for two years, and then how do you come across little old no name Metallica? Because what? Oh, that Metallica's. I'll get to that a little sooner. But what's happening is. Uh, we're reading Sounds Magazine or, or Melody Maker, New Music Express, and we're seeing all this is before Kerrang. This you see all these new bands, and these bands were like like a blurb or two in the back of these ads, and that that's what mm-hmm. we wanted. We didn't like Aria, we didn't like Kansas, we didn't like Sticks, we didn't like none of that American stuff, except for Aerosmith. And but um, okay. and then all these bands we're seeing that you know like Budgie opened it up for Thin Lizzy or someone opened it up for Nazareth. And those bands were the ones we were gravitated to. And then Kerrang! came out and that was the floodgates because everything happened. Um, how we hooked up with Lars, because like I said, Lars had already met Brian Slagle. Brian had a magazine called The New Head Middle View. He did it for a year. Uh, Bob Nobadian, who had Headbanger and, you know, uh, Bob actually did the first article with Patrick Scott and Metallica. He saw the first Slayer gig. Bob's like this legendary headbanger in L.A. Now mm-hmm. he's a documentary filmmaker. And then, uh, of course, him, uh, uh, Lars meeting uh, Quintana. And the reason he got to us was there was a Judas Priest show at Oakland, and my John had just bought a brand new uh, Iron Maiden Killers jacket from uh, Bill Burkhart from Walnut <laughs> Creek. And so... The next day, Lars goes to Bill Burkhart, who held the record exchange. He goes, I saw this guy from EMI. He goes, no, that's John Stranowski. And they traded numbers. And this is before he formed Metallica. So John and I would meet Tuesday at John's apartment. That would be our uh, um, office nights. And then Lars would call. And he like, hey, got a band. Okay, cool, whatever. And then he goes, here, listen to this is a song called Hit the Lights. And we heard Hit the Lights come along. And then you know how in the infant stage, and so we sure. knew about Lars already. We knew about the band, and so when they head up to San Francisco, it was you know second nature. And then sure. we did it was just a, a instant camaraderie. You know, Dave and I hit it off like the bat. You know, poor Ron, Ron hates me by now. Ron didn't have a chance. <laughs> you know, and then James. It's the first show James actually sang and played guitar at the same time. That's what I was told. So, uh, and then they were just friends after that. You know. So the first show James pulled that off, you were at that one? Yeah, yeah. That was at all the major shows in San Francisco, which forms my, my Metallica book. So, Stone, Waldorf, Keystone, all that? Yeah, uh, it was um, the Stone for three shows, Waldorf for two, or Stone for four, actually. Because I, uh, by the time Dave had exited the band, I was really kind of not happy with Lars. And uh, I had to shoot that show because I've knew Hammett for a long time and this kind of local okay. guy doing good. And then I needed a cover shot. And so Jay was going to be on the cover sooner or later. So that's where I had to go. And okay. I could care less about the band by that time. 
Yeah. When this is when this was all going down, was it Lars directly? Someone else from Metallica? I mean, not like management was involved back then. Yeah, it was it was Lars's band, you know. And what happens is here comes Cliff, and Dave and Cliff are musical equals. Dave and Cliff are monsters. Dave actually was the thrash guitar founder. I mean, he founded that whole genre, and he was the one that uh, would talk between songs and all that stuff. And then here comes Cliff. And they're like monsters, and I, from my opinion, I, I just see Lars thinking, Dave's, Dave's too much. You know, mm-hmm. I need to keep control of my band. There was so many back-end stories for the next couple of years where they, might, they were going to get real Lars. Lars had to take drums you know, lessons. Lars, Lars, yeah. Lars, Lars, Lars. But what happens is, who's the biggest rock star on the planet, you know? <laughs> right. And, and he may not be the best drummer, but he's the drummer in Metallica, which is his band, so... Uh, I've I've learned over the years to appreciate him a little bit more. It's hard to picture Kirk Hammett doing all the banter these days. <laughs> yeah, well, he he never did. He never did in Exodus. You know, he barely. I'm said just saying, a lead guitar player doing Metallica's banter it just doesn't fit. It's hard to picture. Yeah, but Dave did it all. I mean, Dave was well, the one. Well, yeah. It seems fitting that he went to form his own band and be the front man because he obviously naturally already fit that role. Well, it was revenge too. It was like right. this man was so, and then. Here's the thing about because after the book came out, I went like two years, very on a tightrope or resi- explaining both sides because Kurt and I were good friends for a long time, and Dave and I were friends. How do you explain this thing? And and it just really um, there's no one else in the Bay Area that could fill Dave's shoes as a guitar player, you know. And when Dave left, James had to bring his game up a whole lot, and it was it Dave, you know, Megadeth is so planned out. Megadeth comes before Metallica in the record bands. It was, I was with James and Lars the day that uh, Record Vault got uh, Killing's My Business. I remember the whole scene. Oh, I remember wow. They were, yeah, we go, it's like, um, James doesn't remember too much. I read an interview and he, he, he uh, didn't really kind of remember, recall that day, but uh, Lars, they started playing it. I've got the first track, Railhead, right? I think the first track of that is. And it was like, here it is, they're doing ride, they're having a writer's block, and then Lars reads the back of it, and the indication for, you know, thanks to Metallica for the metal the blood that runs from metal bands, and, and Lars didn't kind of understand it. James was floored off the bat, and, and it was like, this, well, dudes, look what he did. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, because I went on to photograph Dave for the next two years, you know, and that was kind of cool, because Dave and I had a friendship already, so... Very and cool. I and actually to all you photographers out there, I broke in Dave Mustaine for you guys because he was crazy. You know, just imagine all the you know he was you know and he actually stood still for me. He actually posed for me and stuff. So the pictures we see of the uh, four of them with the infamous beer pictures that that's all you. Yeah, all that stuff. Uh, Brian Lee was there a little bit. There was a guy named Rick Brackett and a girl named Janie Razor, but they didn't have the insight that I had already to do mm-hmm. what needed to be done. So those group shots, uh, the first photograph of uh, Cliff before he just lost Dave, Cliff and Dave, and uh, subsequently yes. now I'm doing work for Gibson because Gibson's doing the archives, the uh, icon series, and so I sent a bunch of shit for uh, Hammett, and now I'm sending a bunch of stuff for Dave because who has the only or the early stuff? You know, right, right. Which is kind of cool. I mean, I'm a Fender guy. Sorry, Todd, but uh, you know, <laughs> you know, but you know, and it's um, one of those things too, where hanging out at Metallica's house, which is, um, and on the posters on the wall, and it's really kind of how James ascended to that part because there's KK Downing, Judas Priest, blonde hair, lead guitar, right, uh, white flying V. 
There's sure. um, uh, Michael Shanker, blonde hair, white flying V, the guitar player. Wolf Hoffman, blonde hair, white, you know, and all of a sudden, this is James Hatfield. And then he just fits that mold. And then sure. who kind of like blows, and he's like the, the, the icon now for that generation to follow. I mean, how many people under, remember Kiki Downing or even Shanker in his heyday or even Wolf Hoffman with hair? And so right, it's, right, it's, right. Uh, it's, uh, it was pretty amazing to see him go to that stage. So now that you have the inside scoop, you can share with him podcasts for all. Which Kirk Hammett signature guitar Gibson's coming out with? Uh, I think they're doing another reissue of Greeny. Uh, wow. Uh, Peter Green's guitar. Yeah, that's been the chatter lately. Uh, they were talking about that with Gary Moore, I think, but it wasn't. Caesar wasn't there yet. So, and I don't know if they could do a, a Epiphone version or not. But you guys seen uh, Dave's guitar, right? Yes. Yeah, his new V. Yeah, and they made it made a custom acoustic for him, yep. which I think it's an extra fret on there. And then there, so what it explained to me was the body had to be extra brace, and that which brings that extra resonation in the lower in the mid tones or whatever. So I'm not a guitar player, but yeah, it's uh, I'm really proud of my generation for you know living through all that shit and still doing it. Well, yeah, and it still things, stands the test of time. Yeah, because like where where where's you know of all the bands ever you know. Uh, Zeppelin didn't survive. Purple didn't survive. The Beatles didn't survive. Well, Stones did. Aerosmith did. I mean, how many? There's a very limited amount of bands that actually keep on going. But yeah, there's still Exodus. And there's still Testament. Right, there's right. Over Overkill. I mean, there's all these Bayer bands. Death Angel. They're still going, you know, and they're still being viable, and they still can do a you know 90 minute set at their age. <laughs> Jeff, you hear her here first. You're going to have your own version of Greeny, and it's not going to cost you a million bucks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Bill, going back to the uh, the Ron days, I mean, you were there probably right in front of you watching Ron leave and, and Cliff enter. What was that like? Um, okay. Now it's been, I don't know how many years. So the very last show at the Waldorf, sorry, Ron, um, Cliff and I, we're, everybody's like in this little hotel room in North Beach. And, of course, Lars is drunk, and he comes over to us and say, don't tell McGovney, but when we get back to L.A., we're going to sack him. And Cliff and I like, what? He's right there. And then we know that Ron paid for everything. Ron, They practiced in Ron's house. He flipped the bill for this. He, his parents flipped the bill for the U-Haul. And then that was kind of callous that, <laughs> there goes Lars. You know, that was the first strike against Lars. So it was kind of weird. And, uh, and Cliff was already hanging out when this announcement was made. Barely, yeah. He was he was yeah. right next to me, you know, when when Lars said that. And then it was some back and forth. I really surprised that actually, Cliff went to Metallica, but I think the music that they were doing really appealed to him because Trauma was kind of a witchy washy band. They were like, Blurs the Cult meets uh, Judas Priest, and it wasn't that that thing. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was. I mean, wow. the, the Bay Area bands were at the time before Metallica was, you know, you had your Van Halen clones, which was Hans Naughty, and then you had your Juice Peace clones, you know, with like sure. Laws Rocket and stuff. There was nothing sure. super original except for Y&T. <laughs> Let's just go back to like the first show. When did, what was the deal? What, would, what did Lars say? Was he like, I need you for this? I need you for a couple shows? Or let's just see what happens when you shoot a couple for us? No, that was, I had a magazine. So I'm like on okay. assignment. And so we're friends, you know, I can do what I want to do because they trust me. They've seen the magazine. So a lot of my portfolio comes from having a magazine and bands knowing what I can do 
what I've done and how much they can get exposure from us. And so, you know, that was really cool. It was just like buddies. We're all showed up as a gang. We all had our job to do, you know, awesome. you know, this guy did this, this guy did this, John and I did this and the band just started banging out. So play a couple uh, shows and then go hang out at 3132 and party all night. That was the last gig with Dave and the band. <laughs> that was because uh, they're going to New York and I said, okay, I'll hang out and stuff. And it was just, Getting there was uh, amazing. <laughs> just James drives me, and I, I can't wake up in the front yard. Yay! And then there's Dave, there's <laughs> Lars doing the Lars thing and stuff. The silver spandex in the bathroom hanging up all crusty. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, I've actually been in that house, and uh, I can just imagine what went on in there back in the day. Yeah. 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 About typical, 20 square feet, and they're all jammed in there. It's like, man, this yeah, is crazy. Dave lived in the garage, I think, or something like that. Uh, what was the last uh, show you shot with them? Oh, uh, that would be the the when they opened for Raven at the Stone with a uh, Hammett, and so, and I was very, I was really, I mean, I'm the kind of person already because my celebrity was more than Metallica at that point, and so I was really kind of disillusioned, but I knew I had to, you know, like I said, uh, I owed Hammett a favor, you know, he'd always be really cool to me, so I thought, okay, I'll show up, and I needed a front cover, which. Uh, 30 years later, it turned out to be a Crankfoot cover on their, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, well, the, when the book came out, it was like this really surrealistic timing. And the book came out just as they got the Rock of Hall, Hall of Fame and, you know, all that stuff. So 2009. Yeah, that was kind of cool that all the stuff came out right. It just, you know, uh, synchronicity. How many picks do you think do you have total of them, Bill? <laughs> Not much. Because <laughs> we're kids, and you know, and film costs money, and developing costs money. Uh, uh, think like eight rolls, maybe. Oh wow! So, yeah, yeah. That's uh, basically what you see in the first book. Is almost everything. I saved a couple shots. My buddy Hugo from Jed Banger uh, released a, that amazing uh, reissue of my book in Spanish. It's just amazing, and I gave the last couple of photographs I had. So pretty much everything in the first book is everything you had from those two yeah, uh, three yeah. years. Yeah, there, there's a couple aces I left, and then they show up in the in Hugo's book. And w- when did you decide to to wrap it up and move on to Megadeth? Uh, right, right after that point, you know, Dave ball Dave flies in. Uh, I saw the I think the first show of of Kerry King at the at the Stone, which was crazy because there was so much dry ice you couldn't see anything, and I just thought, well, that's cool, whatever, you know. It's like, you know, Dave saying, okay, Bill, I'll be back later. And, uh, and then uh, when he opened for Exodus, that was really cool. That was the first time we got to talk to him. And he already had a, a, a Mike Elbert on guitar. And I saw okay. the Mike Elbert lineup a couple times. And Elbert was a great guitar player, you know. Uh, Poland had a little more pizzazz to it. It was Poland stuff, so he had a little more. But uh, Mike Elbert is a really solid guitar player. And then um, the last show I shot, ha! Um, the story goes... Um, uh, Cliff and I were at odds for a long time. Um, he wanted me to go to Europe with him on the ride tour, the second leg of the ride tour, and I just couldn't. I had a magazine, I had band shoots lined up, and I couldn't. And so Metallica, it, ba- it was like rivalries. And so all of a sudden, we're like big like brothers, and every time he'd seen me, he'd push me or shove me or headbutt me or whatever, and it got to be really annoying. Cliff, fuck you, puss, bag, slut. Because, you know, I, you know, um, so... The last show I saw Cliff alive, uh, Megadeth opened with King Diamond at the Stone, and uh, oh, wow. I see I see Cliff. So I close the door, I told security to let nobody in. I photograph my stuff with uh, Dave, and then 
I go next door to hang out with uh, King Diamond for a little bit, and I did King Diamond shots. And after the show, I wanted to make sure that I talked to Oli Bang, who was uh, King Diamond's manager, and uh, Andy and all those guys. And all of a sudden, here comes Cliff, and oh, fuck, here it goes. And he gave me a big bear hug, and he said, dude, good to see you. And I'm going, okay. And um, so him and Dave were talking. This is the first time him and Dave talked after you know Dave got fired. And sure. so I had enough time to do one shot, and it was kind of blurry. And that was the last time Dave and I both saw Cliff alive. A couple of weeks later, when he died, uh, Megadeth opened it up for Motorhead in Oakland. And so I talked to James, I talked to Lars, and then I'm going backstage to talk to Dave. And all of a sudden, security says, uh, okay, Bill, no problem. And they stopped Lars and James from going backstage. And then, you know, that's the whole different, you know, all of a sudden the rivalry begins. Sure, sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What stories just from just a couple of years? That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, just because we're all, yeah, we're just kids. And yeah, it happens really fast in a way. We all like learned everything what we needed to do. And yeah, I learned about cameras and film and developing and, and they learned how to be rock stars. They learned the business and then, you know, yeah. And uh, everything changed after Cliff died. The whole scene changed. I mean, I, I was looking back at my negatives. I'm in LA more than I'm in San Francisco. Even, even James changed this a couple of times at a, I was photographing. He's like someplace in the same photograph and he gets all pissed off and he goes, dude, what are you talking about? You know, it's, we go back a long way. Why do you want to even like talk to me about this? You're in my photograph. Sorry, dude. And like, he had a snap out of his being rock star attitude. I said, dude. It's amazing how you said after Cliff's death, the whole scene, just not the band changed, but the entire scene. Yeah, everybody, whole scene changed. It was, uh, uh, actually Todd Crew from uh, Jet Boy died first. And then, but we all knew Todd was, uh, you know, heroin addict and it wasn't going to last. But uh, Cliff was totally surprised. It was just, I mean, he was a good guy. He was, you know, a great guy. He was a musical giant. Some special years, special guy. How many unseen early Metallica photos are you still hanging on to? Uh, Nothing good. <laughs> I, I just have some scrap of, cutting room stuff. Yeah, there's some a bunch of stuff of James singing, but it's not it's not awesome. It's not even close to being what you need. So yeah, I mean, what I put out in the book is pretty amazing. So all oh, those book shots are the best. Yeah, thanks. I love I love the photo of Lars with the uh, Roto Tom. Yeah, that's a great yeah. picture. Yeah, yeah, it is just, that was... it's, I mean, you can tell it's kill 'em all. You can tell it's early on, and you can tell he, you know he looks like he's 11 years old, and the Roto Toms weren't around for that long. Yeah, that was kind of cool. And uh, Dave Mars, uh, Dave's uh, Lars' drum tech, the back cover, and, and it was funny because that's where Dave was always there. And but you know, the Stones my stage. And I do what I want on that stage. And then I had got those, uh, yeah, those couple shots. And then years later, when Dave got the wiggle, how would you get that photograph? Because I'm always right there. I said, dude, you must have just split for one second. I love the shots from the early days because I mean. For the most part, they're in a club. You'd have no uh, photo pit to work with. You're on the stage. You're off to the side. And back yeah. then, that was that was a classic view. Being a photographer, the rule number one is be where no one else is at. So that means behind the stage, whatever. And you, you find a shot that no one else is going to get. So that's it's always been important. You know, a lot of my photographs are like that. Always uh, an angle that no one else thought of or something. Those ones always end up being the most iconic, it seems, too. Yeah, it, it really does, because anybody can get the front shot, and it's like kind of, I look at people's shots even today, and, and the ones I like a lot are the ones that no one else gets, the view no one else gets. I can tell you if you're a good photographer or not by the, the angle you're at. Are you just like shooting the con, are you a concert photographer or you're a rock photographer? There's a big difference. Rock photographer gets access, 
you know, he's with the band. He That's the band knows him, and, and yeah. concert photographers get the pass. Click, click, look at me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a, a, a what we call a ninja clause where you're not supposed to be seen. And so I've gone a lot of years that no one's seen me on stage. Well, everyone's a photographer these days with a goddamn iPhone, right? <laughs> yeah, but that's cool because, you know, imagine if people had that back in the day, you know, even with Hendrix and stuff, how much mm-hmm. different it would have been. You know, it, it's, it, it, it's supposed to, it's important to document what's happening because without, without a photograph, who are you, you know? It's important, but there's also, a, I think, an element to it back in the day of having such limited pictures to pick from. Yeah. That's what makes it special when you look at your work. Yeah, it, it was a lot more, I feel, like art that goes into it rather than, all right, I'm going to snap a thousand pictures in 10 right. seconds and then just go through and pick whatever ones look cool and all that well, stuff. Well, especially Bill's doing his own developing. I mean, that's an right. art in itself. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I went to college for. And, and the, the secret is, uh, I used a thing called Tri-X, which is Kodak film with a lot of big silver chunks in it, and you had to control this. It's like a Formula One race car. If you do wrong, you're going to spin out. And so I went and, 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 hey, kids out there, learn your algebra, because what happens is <laughs> Kodak gives you a little graph, and I had to factor out to the nth degree to what it turned out to be. I would freeze my developer to so 32 degrees, and I had to develop it for 30 minutes. Which, which the grain, you use some of those photographs, you know, there's almost no grain, especially the later ons with, uh, with uh, Mustaine and, and other photo, people I photographed. There's no grain, to, and then you get this extra glow image to it kind of thing. So, and I, I wouldn't tell anybody that for a long time, but that was my secret. Back in those days, Bill, I mean, Jeff and I grew up in the 80s and 90s. How long back then did it take to develop just one picture? Yeah, well, uh, um, okay, yeah, the score, you have to buy the film. Expose the film, develop the film, and print the film. See, Walgreens used to take care of that for me. <laughs> yeah, but, but the color stuff, but the black and white were kind of really important because we were a black and white magazine for a long time. Yeah, and so that was, uh, I mean, like you know, developing your developer thirty-two degrees for thirty minutes, kind of thing. Already, you come back from a gig, it's two o'clock in the morning, you know, you're going to spend until three o'clock in the morning developing film because, like a Saturday night gig, whatever, Tuesday morning, you had to be at the office laying out the next issue and so and that's, that's another thing too because we had editorial sense i knew when i was going to the gig it's going to be a cover uh live shots you know do i need a centerfold so i already had a purpose where i was going there to get and so i can pull off two rolls of film and it depends what kind of band is i if a like i saw riot and it was one roll of film for two gigs i knew exactly what i wanted to get Wow. And so, yeah. So, I mean, and how many pictures in a roll back then? 24, 36? Yeah, 30, 36. Yeah. To last for two shows. And now to think that a normal photographer shoots 200 at one gig? Yeah. Well, I do photo sessions and, I, and I, I blow the 200 mark after the first 10 minutes kind of thing. <laughs> but, but even though I still know what I want and I, you know, um, my newer stuff just, I, I think it's amazing. So I, I, I know the people I'm working with, I will have meetings or whatever. And so when we actually shoot, because uh, my time's limited. And so I get there, I know what I want, I look at the lighting, look at the sun, look at their attitude, what they're wearing, and poof, within an hour I got, you know, a couple of masterpieces that they're happy with. I'm shooting awesome. my buddy Nick Gertzen, Nick's amazing guitar player, um, on Sunrise, and I, do, I don't do Sunrise shots, but Nick's is really crazy. The Keith me in Honolulu, there's so many amazing musicians here, so many world-class people, and they, love, they live here, and some of these guys gig, you know, before pandemic, every day. And so you don't get good... Or you know, they get amazing because they're playing to 
your public every single day kind of thing. And they're making bank out here. And so uh, Nick's a heavy metal guitar player, and um, he's from Sweden. He's part of that Swedish thing. And um, he was in a band called Voices of the Extreme, and they put out two albums. Uh, Nico McDrain, McBrain, a couple years ago, or like 10 years ago, had a jam band, and Nick was Adrian Smith in that band. And Nick's is a, just metal oh, wow. guitar player. That had to be yeah, amazing. Yeah, he has a pedigree. He has a, a Diodario, Dorschman stuff. So he's finished up his album and doing some inner shots for his album. It's just, but Hanula has amazing, amazing musicians, and it keeps me, it keeps me happy. That's awesome. Boy, yeah. I'd love to see and that it, jam band with Nico. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the that Voices of the Extreme is pretty heavy metal shit. It's pretty, like, borderline. I think Dan Spitz or uh, Dave Spitz produced it, the first one. Uh, Dan's brother from Anthrax. Going back to the old days, what do you uh, what do you miss about the old days? I know it's not anything nothing, in technology, but nothing whatsoever. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm always the onto the future, huh? Yeah, you, it's always the next thing. What's happening next? I don't. It's kind of weird that I, I have to, after 20 years, always talk about it. But it's fine because it, it's history now. I can shed light, and maybe you know the fans that couldn't be there or inspire some musician to do the next thing. So that's that, I'm comfortable with that role but you know before that yeah it was it was i don't remember if anything ever bump into kirk out in hawaii yeah actually not a lot but once in a while he knows where to find me so i hope he gave you two thumbs up on the book uh no actually uh what i'll, I'll tell you because so about 10 years ago i'm going to see a buddy uh, there's a band called havoc I not like that book holy shit this should be good wait, wait i'll tell you so uh havoc used to be a big band in the bay area they opened for tigers they opened for Metallica, and then the Mike, the guitar player, lives here. So he has a band. I was going to see him. And I, I stop and I see this guy in the distance. I stopped by a stoplight. And he walks in. He walks in. He's like, Bill, I seen your book. But the, the thing is, there's one picture of Cliff and Dave and a girl in the middle, right? The girl is Rebecca Hammett. And, and uh, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> what happens is. It's, well, Jeff's eyes just got real big. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it's the history now, but. Uh, Rebecca was dating Kirk and she dumped Kirk for Dave and then she dubbed <laughs> Dave for go back to Kirk. And he's, I, I love you, Kirk, but you know the story. Wow. And the thing was when Dave would say, Kirk has my dick taste, that was it. <laughs> and, and Gibson wanted to use this photograph. Let's do it. It's an amazing photograph, but you can't use it. It's, it's a murky area, you know, it's wow. Dave is, yeah. And so, but it's, it, it's, you can tell how Cliff and I were so close because it's just that's the, probably the honest picture of Cliff. It's just him and me kind of thing, and Dave being Dave. And, I mean, wow. you know, that was uh, you know we we're just really close. And then you know you do what you do, and you have a magazine or whatever. But people have that expect for you, and then you know, you know you're not going to exploit them and stuff. There's a code back in the '70s, I guess. Neil Preston, those guys did. You, you didn't photograph the drug use. You didn't photograph too much of the group you used. You didn't photograph them falling down. You photograph. Sure. The cool stuff, you know. You didn't have to be the trash person. The things we learned, Jeff. That's why I love this show and special guests. The more you know. (laughs) And the cool thing about to give you guys the cool thing about podcasting is it's to do fanzine. I mean, I mean, Nobadian had the first metal podcast, and you know, and it was no rules, you know, and just like got to, you know one-on-one conversations and we talked just like this and i being from the fanzine world that's so cool you 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 you're, you're you guys are you know how do you say it uncompromised i mean it's people who love the, what they're doing and you just do it you know right. and it's it's really and then 
I was the most interviewed rock photographer on the planet one time. And I and, and the cool thing is podcast, that's what it is. I love that, man. Very cool. We love having you. Thank you guys. I gotta ask your relationship. How'd your relationship change with Lars over the last forty years? Um he oh it's funny. Um we stopped talking, but every once in a while I get a text or or uh, I talked in Albanian or something, goes, Hey Lars said hi. Um he did a they did a tour of Argentina a couple years ago. And one of my buddies brought my book to him, and Lars is like, and Lars knows these photographs, and he's like, and but it made this girl's day. And then my buddy from Canada took, because I have the very first color photograph internationally published of photographer of uh, Metallica. Actually, oh, wow. I have so many, I have so many firsts. It's stupid because just beyond the cutting edge. So that picture in Kerrang with McGovney, that's their first. Um, and so my buddy Bob took it to you know show in Montreal, and you know. But Lars knows it, and he owes me money for that stuff. So, but so it's always here and there. I get messages. I don't really care to talk to him unless he wants to buy my Lars. You can buy my archives, okay? <laughs> What's the price, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> That's for you. I mean, he could like throw away a million, and it wouldn't matter. So, I'm kind of surprised he hasn't tried to get it just for his own personal vault. <laughs> there, there was when they were reissuing everything. There was talk, and I was still anti Lars, and so I said, no, I don't want to talk to you guys. I mean, who else can do that, right? Who else can say Metallica? Nah, that's right. That's, Ross Helfen can't even say that. That's some serious, <laughs> that's some saddest right there where you're like, no, no, I, I still want nothing to do with you. Yeah, and the thing about Helfen is I'm always before Helfen no matter what it is. You know, all the bands I photograph, I photograph later. In the, Very true. It's Bill Hale, Ross Helfen. And Ross knows who I am. So there's always chatter like, yeah, Ross was talking about, and I showed him your work, and yeah. So I just like being... Where am I right now? In a way, uh, it's it's fun. I raised a family. My daughters are almost grown. Nice. Um, uh, Hawaii is in a beautiful place. It's kind of weird lately, but um, this I get to be what I want to be. I get to be Bill Hale still, you know. And uh, I I finally build a website. We're doing a website. Uh, uh, I'm doing you know print sales and all that other stuff. Plus, I'm photographing new bands still, or bands I love. So, and you're still doing it 45 years later. Not many people can say they're still doing what they love. Yeah, and then and you know, um, still putting out superb, amazing product. You know, that's it always drives me because I'm a photographer first, and then and you always strive for that, and and uh, you always try to find that iconic image in everything you do, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of a burden, but that's what it is. You, you have to raise that bar high, and so that's what makes you different from just someone who's going out and taking pictures. You're actually trying to capture that moment, you know, that perfect angle. Versus, all right, well, I'm just gonna point my phone and take Shoot a picture. Today. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's still a lot of a love of photography in it for me. So that's so cool. I want to get my, my buddies and bands here, like the best product they can get. I mean, a photograph by Bill Hale, all of a sudden, you know, they, it shows up my place and I don't know how many people see all my web stuff and, and do Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Glenn Hughes sent me a letter the other day. He wanted to see more photographs and I said, okay, well, sooner or later, I'll, you know, and um, it's good to know that I'm still in the ether. You know, my photographs are still being, you know, looked at and sought after. And you know, I was in a Testament documentary. My photographs were a couple years ago, and it just, you know, they're literally part of music history as we know it. Yeah, yeah. You look at any the Bob Nobating's uh, documentaries. I my photographs are thoroughly in it. And then the Bay Area one, I actually make a cameo. It's just me and Diamond Head. Like, I always wanted, uh, Banger Films was supposed to come out, and I don't know what happened. 
But and when the first project, when uh, what's his name, the guy from Banger Films, the Canadian yeah, guy. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. When it first started forming, you know, it was just like behind the scenes people, no big celebrities and stuff. So he was going, his crew was going to fly out, and I thought, cool, let's do something that no one else can do. Me and Diamond Head, Waikiki Beach. Oh, and so then that cool. didn't happen because you know more of that uh i think his name is jeff right someone someone will text me the other day and um the more it go on more i got to be more of a, a artist superstar kind of thing and so yeah so that when bob said you know i need some footage of you i was like oh cool i got this place ready <laughs> great footage bill does the name brian silver ring a bell yes we talked to him a few weeks back and uh, he's got the photo now called the shot heard around the world, and that's the only known photo of those four together. Actually, uh, I printed three copies. Okay. And uh, I gave John Stunansky one, Lars had one, and I had one autographed, and uh, which makes it super rare, you know. And then uh, when Brian came along, you know, he's a good guy. I mean, I think he's really cool, and he's a family man and stuff. And so that you here's the price. You want it, you have it. And um, as far as I know, that's the only surviving copy, I think. So it is pretty rare. Yeah. Hell of a collector. He talked about you for a bit. And uh, great stories, great collection, great guy. Yeah, really, really nice guy. And uh, it, it's sometimes it's good. To, uh, for me, it's a cathartic process. You know, I have all the stuff. It's in storage or whatever or back room. But just give it to people who enjoy it. little inside joke with him here. He wants me to ask you, what's your most famous photo you've taken? that one and there's a half that's a dozen. what i was guessing there's half a dozen that really like you show up all the time there's that james you know when the first photograph took a james san francisco happy birthday james um that's right like, yeah it's giving the middle finger that's a cool photograph there's uh the bond scott one is pretty big everywhere and uh there's a couple here and there and so and uh the the list of firsts or just because you have a magazine and the magazine were just geared to up-and-coming metal bands. It was before metal was any metal kind of thing. And so uh, Blackie Lawless and I used to be friends. And Blackie, I put him on the cover. Yeah, well, he, when he was Blackie, he was cool. Now I, you know, talk No, he's about, awesome. And then, Jeff and I just have an inside joke about him. That's why we're laughing. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, and so what happens is then you're familiar with that video, video pieces of the Raw? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so he, he turns around and he says... Um, before I was signed, I was on the cover of three international magazines, and he shows up my photograph. Uh, the band called L.A. Guns, I had the first photograph, color photograph published of them. Doro Pesh, the first cover photograph of Doro Pesh. I mean, Jeez. the list goes on. I mean, I did a lot of stuff for Poison before they were big. It just, you know, you're on, you're, you're on a cutting edge, and you know what's happening. And Hip Parader, Rolling Stone, they don't know this stuff. They're stuck with the cars no. or whatever. So we yeah, have all the mainstream have, stuff. Yeah, I remember going to Atlantic Records in, in, in uh, Sunset Boulevard, and their PR agent, John, goes, can we get Kicks?" And she goes, who's Kicks?" It's like, you know, Kicks is your band coming out next week. And she goes, oh, I don't know about that. And so we knew what's happening before the labels knew what's happening. You were on it all, man. You're just hitting home run after home run, Bill. Well, that was because John and I were, were a one-two one, punch. There was no American journalist photographer team, and we just did that. We were... I mean, John was legendary in his own right. I mean, he went on to uh, write Bio Salemi, Alice Cooper. Uh, what's that German band with a girl singer in? Oh, God, she's going to hate me. Uh, uh, fuck, she's going to... Shit. I forgot New or old? No, it's Sabina Clausen. Uh, Sabina's like the first thrash metal 
good singer ever, female、mm-hmm. singer, Holy Moses. Yeah, yeah, Holy Moses. There you go. Yeah, and they were there. She was insane. She was on MTV being a, a host, really cute, really nice. Gets on stage is like a chainsaw. And she's like the first one to, first female to actually do that stuff, you know. And it's just the list of first. And John, John grew up in Germany, so he had inside scoop. That's why he accepted our best friends and stuff. And Dora was our best friends, and then you know, Renny Wild was best friends and stuff. The fact that you were around in such formative years, you know, the Kill 'Em All era too, it works out perfect because we have this little in voting for all segment, and we're doing a 20 week 40th anniversary countdown because they're doing their 40th anniversary show coming up here, and we're kind of doing it in chronological order. So、uh, week number two on our in voting for all is actually two songs off of Kill 'Em All. You just got to vote for one of whatever one either like better or what one you think they would play live. We're gonna be doing Jump in the Fire versus. Pulling teeth. Where's no remorse at? <laughs> well, That's next week. <laughs> we we're trying to、oh. we we're trying to pick kind of rare songs for what we、oh. think they might play for their fortieth、okay. anniversary. So that's kind of、oh, why we were、yeah. going with that.、Okay. Who was the first option then? Was the first song? Jump in the fire、oh, versus fire. pulling Ju- teeth. Be, yeah, jump in the fire. All、yeah. right. And, and, and actually, knowing Lars, that'd probably be like the third or fourth song in the list. Not a bad selection. I gotta go with jump in the fire as well. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a a three way tie on that one. I'm gonna go jump. I would love to、you're, hear pulling teeth, but it's just it's not that you're not gonna have Scott Pingle from the from the orchestra to play it, right? And we're not gonna have Cliff Burton playing it either. So it's just not yeah, quite the same. the same. But I do know that it's a song that so many people would love to hear them play live. So it'd be interesting to see what the vote, you know, what it comes down to. I heard it two years ago. I'm going for Jump in the Fire. And the thing about Cliff and his bass solo, so no one does bass solos. So Cliff comes out, hits the Morley, and that was great. It was like, and all of a sudden, Lars jumps in, and a couple, and then at that moment, they became the best band in the world. And the Lars is just doing this, right? Wow! It's like, and yeah, exactly. The whole bold statement, Bill. Everybody's going like. Fuck, and that's when I knew they were the most dangerous band in the world that time in the world. And I, I, I would actually put that band, that version of Metallica, up to like Deep Purple in '73, Black Sabbath, even Zeppelin. There is that. Oh wow, that's that like prime. <laughs> yeah, that that little bit blew everybody away. I mean, I'm I have a photograph behind the stage, up、uh, front, you know, back in the club, and it's all it is: Metallica logo, couple lights, and it's, it's Burton. Uh, Headfield, and you can see Lars and Mustaine, and that's like that was they were the most dangerous band on the planet. That that lineup, they were they were monsters and on stage and off, you know. So you're saying when the, when the Morley kicked in, that was your holy shit moment? Yeah, and then no, when when Lars jumped on drums at the same time, it was that、okay. it's on that video, whatever. It's like fuck, it was this, the、yeah. whole place went, oh my god, that's like fucking crazy. I always wish we could have saw what. Would have happened to Metallica had Dave Mustaine stayed in the band, just with his musical writing ability as well. Because I mean, we all know the guy is an absolute monster. The first album would have been exactly the same, because Cliff did. I mean,、uh, Kirk didn't really change anything. He didn't have time to change it. So basically, that and even even McGuffey's bass parts were still the same, but played a lot better. So the the thing, the next album would ride be ride a lightning. That would be the big question, and I don't know. I mean, I, don't I mean, know. With, Hammett's Hammett's great on that. Oh, Hammett's absolutely amazing, but it makes you、yeah. wonder if you know through the writing process. Obviously, there was a lot of you know James and Lars, and then you know some 
some stuff from Cliff as well. And, you know, Kirk didn't really have a lot to do with it in the early years. Makes you wonder, you know, if Dave would have been a little bit more in the writing process and how that yeah, would have changed the music. Yeah, it would be a lot more melodic, you know, the stuff that Cliff did was so much more. Like, there's a big difference between uh, um, uh, Masters and, and Justice. It's a huge, nice oh, yeah. difference. You know, and that was the absence of, of uh, Cliff. It would have been cool to see Cliff and Dave actually be able to really yeah, work together. That's been the big question. Uh, I guess if you remember some kind of monster when uh, Lars uh, gang busted uh, you know, Dave, and that was one of the things he said, you know, I, I regret not being able to record with Cliff. Right. You know, and so, and then I haven't seen the upstepping up the Gibson icon thing, but Todd tells me they talk, he talks a lot about Cliff in the, in the third segment. So, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The guy was a monster and a nice guy, even though we, we came to blows one time, but just a monster. So, Bill, as we wrap up here, is there any Metallica story you've never shared you'd like to share <laughs> and uh, get a chuckle out of our audience? Uh, no, actually, it's pretty well consistent. There's a couple of times that Lars got thrown up on. That was kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> and, well, because, you know, the legendary show that you know, Lars shows up at the Troubadour in L.A., the first time motored there, and Lars gets drunk and throws all over Lemmy. And yeah, so we know that few, one. Yeah, so a few years later, I'm at the Exodus house, and Bailoff's being Bailoff, and, and Lars is trying to make this girl, and she turns around and, like, pukes on his lap. So <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, karma, and walked away. But uh, yeah, there's not. I mean, they take were, that, you little Danish fucker. Yeah, it, there, there was um, during ride. There was a lot of things we would interact with. You know, they had no money. I had no money, but we scraped money to buy Cliff some hamburgers. Uh, John and Lars would trade records, and John actually bought most of uh, uh, Lars's earlier stuff. It was a band called the Parallax, and the Parallax EP is like the most rarest thing ever. And Lars had a copy, and. They took like months to negotiate, and then Lars did an interview. Said, "Yeah, some guy bought it from me." It's like, dude, just go ahead and say Sternowski. Some goes, guy. Yeah, and then we get a chuckle out of that. And you know but, he uh, remembers yeah, Lars, with his how his brain works. He remembers everything. Yeah, and then he says certain things to keep it in context or out of context, or like you know, make sure he you know slept. But you know, Lars, what I've seen lately, you know, after he lost his hair, he's become a nice guy. <laughs> it's humbled him. <laughs> yeah that's, that's yeah, why that baseball cap's on all the time now yeah there was so many stories about <laughs> they're about to clip, kick him out of the band this and that Lars give me a call I don't give a shit anyway yeah, <laughs> yeah so if you want to debate yeah, it first, yeah so where are you guys from then what's I mean how long have you guys been doing this we started this bill uh, when COVID hit last May and uh, we haven't missed a week since wow that's kind of cool and how did you guys meet uh, Jeff and I playing a Metallica tribute band together Cool. We've been touring for uh, 10 years, COVID hit, and we kind of threw the idea around for, God, the last two or three years, and finally an excuse to fire it up. And we've had a lot of fun with it, and uh, we were talking with Good. Brian Silver, and then he threw your name out there, and I'm like, God, I have his book. i got to look him up and see if he wants to come on and chat, so this has been great. Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. If you ever get to Hawaii, I'll buy the first round of Mai Tais. Now we're talking. What's the main rock club in Honolulu, Bill? Yeah, good luck with that, huh? <laughs> Not really one, right? Well, there uh, we have two great venues, and depending what national acts or midline acts come in, they, that's where they go. So, well, a little limited on the island, but uh, welcome to paradise. We can show up with ukuleles, and we can play acoustic four horsemen. There's people that do that here, I and mean, they'll pull out and go in their set. They'll do like one or something acoustically, and then 
and the tourists will get it kind of thing. Sure, <laughs> sure. Bill, thanks so much, man. We'll be in touch. Well, all right. Good luck, guys. Thanks, man. Yeah, thanks again. Okay. Aloha. Take care, Bill. All right. Bye.